From the Annie E. Casey Foundation, I'm Lisa Hamilton, and this is Casey Cast. Money for an emergency, college savings, home ownership, these and other assets give families the financial stability to move their children forward on the pathway to opportunity. However, for low-income families, a paycheck might only be enough to meet immediate needs, such as food, clothing, and shelter, not enough to enable them to save for tomorrow. Helping us better understand the financial prospects of America's families is Bill Emmons, one of the nation's leading experts on the household finances of Americans and what it means to the broader economy. Bill is the Assistant Vice President and Lead Economist with the Center for Household Financial Stability at the Federal Reserve Bank of St. Louis. He's written extensively on home ownership, the racial wealth gap, and trends related to higher education, assets, and race. Welcome to the podcast, Bill. Thanks, Lisa. We are so glad you could join us. So first, I think we ought to start with explaining what wealth is. Wealth is such an evocative word that often makes people think about mansions and fancy cars. What do we mean by wealth in this context? Wealth is not exactly income. Income is what you earn, and wealth is what you own minus what you owe. So it's your assets, things like your house, your durable goods, but also financial assets, savings accounts, minus your debts. So the wealth is net worth. Hmm. So you've written a lot about the distribution of wealth in the United States and something we've heard lots talked about, certainly as we have uh, debated um, our recent tax uh, laws. Um, But you've noted that the distribution of wealth in the U.S. is becoming um, rapidly more unequal. Can you talk about this trend? Yes. And as you say, Lisa, there has been discussion of wealth inequality, probably not as much as income inequality. Mm -hmm. Both of these concepts. The income is what you earn. The wealth is what you own minus what you owe. They're both becoming more unequal and they're related to each other because people who earn a lot more income probably are able to save more to build up more of their wealth. So the, in both cases, both income and wealth inequality, it appears that the trends are, are going in the direction of more inequality, probably uh, related to changes in the economy. Uh, more technology competing uh, with people in the middle of the income distribution. Mm -hmm. It's also the case that uh, a lot more responsibility is being put on people to make financial decisions. And so that's going to be more difficult. Someone uh, who doesn't have a lot of wealth or a lot of income maybe can't afford a financial advisor, Mm -hmm. maybe doesn't have enough time or or education uh, background to make, make those decisions. Does it also have to do anything with pensions? So if you want to think about uh, you know, say, kind of a broad concept, but the, the middle class, the person who uh, years ago maybe was a high school graduate, uh, maybe today it, it's more common uh, for a college graduate to be uh, required to get into the middle and middle upper range. And for many years after World War II, most of those jobs came along with health care insurance and a pension, what was called a defined benefit pension. Mm-hmm just a a formula that says once you retire, if you've worked for this company for enough years, we'll pay you a certain amount every month. And so, and that goes to the point I I just mentioned about, that was pretty simple. You didn't have to think too much about that, but the corporate environment has changed uh, and more and more companies are now, instead of giving you this defined benefit, a promised payment, it's uh, an account where they put some money in 
maybe, and you put in money. This is the de defined contribution model, and you have to make all the decisions about how that money is uh, invested and then figure out what to do with it when you get to retirement. Another thing that's going along with this trend away from the defined benefit pension is simply the loss of these uh, you know, more traditional middle-class secure jobs. There's more uh, job instability, more part-time work, or uh, jobs that don't have those kinds of benefits. So I think you're right that uh, pension wealth, that your, your retirement savings more broadly, has been a very important part of people's wealth, along with their home, typically. Mm -hmm. And those changes in the retirement system uh, have made it more difficult, especially for people who maybe relied on those mm -hmm. uh, simpler pensions in the past. And what have you found um, about uh, how race and education and age play into um, the wealth of households in this country? There are very clear differences along racial and ethnic lines in all of the dimensions we're talking about, income, wealth, uh, access to pensions, other savings, um, homeownership. I think there has been progress, but uh, really one of the messages of the work that I'm doing or one of the conclusions that, that comes out of it is we have so much more work to do. Hmm. And so you continue to see a persistent, um, what folks often call the racial wealth gap. Yes. Um, across and I, I, the data you I'll see. mention there in this, uh, it, we talked a little bit about income inequality and wealth inequality. So the racial gaps exist in both dimensions, mm. but the gaps are much, much larger in wealth. Mm. Say and more this, about that. This is consequential. It matters because um, income is necessary to, to put food on the table, shelter, transportation, etc. Wealth maybe doesn't seem as important on a day-to-day -day basis, and yet we know, and there's all lots of evidence, that suggests that wealth really is important for things like stability. Mm -hmm. When you get hit with an unexpected expense, for example, having money in the bank mm -hmm. is hugely important, so you don't have to go out and borrow money at, at a very, very high interest rate or sell an asset. Uh, it's, so it's stability. Absolutely, wealth is very, very important. It's also important for mobility for education, either for yourself or for your children. Right. So um, we understand there are stark differences um, in terms of wealth along um, racial uh, identity lines. What about uh, education and age? Education gaps on wealth are much larger than they are for income. Mm. And so we think that's probably related to what I mentioned earlier about having higher income maybe gives you a little more flexibility so that you can save more. Mm -hmm. But it also seems, and we've, we've found a lot of evidence of this, that people with more education tend to make financial decisions that are more conducive to wealth accumulation mm -hmm. over time. It mm -hmm. starts with the basic, just saving money. Uh, it's not a given. Not everybody can or does save. Only about half of Americans regularly save. Uh, and people with more education are more likely to save also true they're more likely to save a higher fraction of their income and even uh, things that maybe aren't so obvious right off the, the top of your head but willingness to take some risk uh, to build assets so for example holding some uh, stock mutual funds in your retirement account rather than having it all in a very safe a bond or a, or a deposit kind of asset mm -hmm. greater risk and greater reward yes but, you know, something interesting I saw was that um, you noted uh, having more education certainly leads to higher wealth, but it does not eliminate the racial and ethnic wealth gaps. 
that's, I would say, probably the number one focus uh, right now for the work we're doing. Um, as you say, Lisa, the, the, both the, the mobility aspect but also the stability aspect seems to be uh, different across racial and ethnic lines. So let me be more specific. We can trace out what happened to some extent in this great housing bubble and crash and the Great Recession period across virtually every group, however you want to cut up the population, uh, everybody lost some money in the, in the downturn. Many people also lost jobs. But what happened, it seems, in the recovery, we've seen kind of a, a bifurcation. Uh, white and Asian college graduates have bounced back much more quickly, and we're not seeing it as much among Hispanic and black mm. families. And we think a substantial amount of or the reason for this is because of the uh, the portfolios, the assets owned by uh, different families and you know, the liability side, the debts. Mm. It's mm. also true that there are some persistent gaps in earnings in the income of uh, white college graduates, say, versus Hispanic and black college graduates. Mm. But by our estimation, those are not quite big explain. enough hmm. to explain the, the big differences in wealth outcomes. Interesting. So we're, we're definitely looking into that and trying to, to understand that better. Right. And then finally, I think age. You've done some work about the demographics yes. of wealth and age, one that I found personally devastating, <laughs> but you can <laughs> share okay, with well, our let, listeners. Let me, yeah, <laughs> let, let me uh, talk a little bit about that. Most people by age 40 have uh, you know, finished their education, probably, you know, most people who will marry have married by that time. Um, maybe they've bought a house, you know, all of those sorts of things. And then the middle-aged years, we say from about 40 to early 60s, and we, we cut it at 62. So that's the period when you're uh, fully engaged in all of these activities. Your earnings typically peak. reach their peak at some time in this, this age range. And then after 62, we see an increasing number of people retiring, mm -hmm. withdrawing from the workforce. So income typically goes down somewhat. You start to rely on pensions and savings of various sorts. Uh, wealth is similar, but a little different. Wealth, typically most young families start off with very, very little wealth, build it up during their working years. It, peaks in their 50s or 60s maybe, and then a little bit different from income, the, the data suggests that wealth doesn't drop off quite as much. So people uh, save, and, and from surveys, we know that a lot of people save for uh, unexpected things like healthcare expenses. And so if, if you are lucky enough not to need to spend a lot on, on healthcare, then that wealth is still there, and in some cases can be passed on to heirs. But what we have seen and others have looked at the data and found, found something similar is that it looks like it's a lot tougher to be young these days. Mm. Hmm. The wealth trajectories uh, are not rising as quickly. They don't, you know, it seems to be starting out even at a lower level. And we think that's probably related to the cost of education mm. to some extent. It's also true that some of the job opportunities that young people faced, particularly those with, say, without college education, uh, those jobs aren't paying as much as they used to. So it, it does look like uh, the younger end of the life cycle is tougher mm. today. And, you know, it's also the, tr the case that we've just been through this uh, very, very severe recession. And so the, the scarring effects of, of that are still evident in uh, young people. Mm. So the complementary way of looking at that um, 
is to say, well, let's just go back through the 20th century and think about when you were born, when in historical time, in what year were you born, are there any differences? And again, we're not the first to find this, but uh, the answer is yes, there are some differences. It does look like there are better times to be born and worse times to be born. Because of economic um, cycles that have yeah, happened. Yeah, uh -huh. uh, even things like um, the, the, the uh, example I used, and that I think that's what you're referring to, Lisa, is the, it looks like the best time to be born was about 1940. That wasn't me, that Bill. Was, that's very disappointing. Yeah, that, that was probably because <laughs> after the Great Depression in the 1930s, birth rates were very low. Mm -hmm. And so these were small groups of, of young people. After World War II, the economy boomed. boomed. Mm -hmm. And so there were lots of good opportunities for these young people. So they got a good early start on their careers. Uh, the economy grew very rapidly. The standard of living grew very strongly. Uh, there was also expansion of uh, investments in education and health care and, and retirement so that when those people born in, say, 1940, you know, I'm taking broadly right. years before and years after, by the time they hit retirement, they had had a, a good long period of time when the economy was strong, uh, probably retired by the time of the Great Recession. They'd paid off their debts. Mm -hmm. Social Security and Medicare were there for them, and they've sort of cruised through this period. Conversely, what looks like about the worst time to be born is about 1970. That stings, Bill. <laughs> that really stings, yes. Because this, by no fault of anyone born in 1970, you didn't choose to be born then. Uh, you were just coming of age at the time when the economy did start to slow down, mm -hmm. just in advance of the Great Recession, mm -hmm. the housing crash. And I would say another dimension was that the financial challenges, temptations, if you will, have changed also. Mm. So that the, in the last few decades, there's been a lot more uh, availability of borrowing, Credit. and in some cases, the necessity to borrow, whether it's because house prices have run up so much, benefiting those older homeowners, um, and also the cost of education mm -hmm. has run up so much. Mm. And so people born in later years in the 20th century were much more likely to borrow uh, just to pay for their education, mm. whereas their parents or grandparents might have gone to college basically for free. Hmm. And you know, that's um, one of those things where policies have changed, attitudes have changed. We're asking young people to pay a lot more for education today than we used to. Mm -hmm. So I think it's really, it's, the, the economy has changed, the types of jobs available, uh, the housing situation has changed, higher education has changed, and uh, the access and it's, I think you can tell from, from what I'm saying that the access to credit can be beneficial, but it also can, can be harmful, risk, right. uh, whether it's high-cost credit or even what you think of as more reasonable credit. But if, if people are borrowing so much that they're at risk of, say, losing a house mm -hmm. during the downturn or uh, maybe borrowing for education more than they can reasonably repay. Well, it, it, this is um, certainly very important for us to understand the the demographics and the trends uh, and and uh, how they affect the prospects for overall household financial uh, stability. When I looked at some of your work, I saw you'd identified um, sort of three 
markers of struggling families that I thought, um, given Casey's work, it would be helpful to explore. Um, the first is around too much wealth in homes, and we can talk about the role of homes in the American dream. Right. Uh, the second was about uh, families that have too much debt, um, and it sounds like we could explore something around student loan debt there. And then the third is around too little savings, and right. um, there's been shocking uh, data about uh, the uh, very, very small amount that families have uh, for emergency. So I'd, I'd love to explore all three of those with you. So first, sure. why don't we talk about um, too much wealth in homes? How's that impacting families? I think the, um, you know, the best illustration is just this big crash we went through. Uh, and so if all of your wealth was in a house and the house value goes down, uh, you know, in the worst case, even you could lose, lose your home altogether. Um, and even in over the long haul, it's true that uh, investors do better when they have a spread of investments, so a diversified portfolio, mm-hmm. not just in housing, but uh, also in things like some mutual funds that are invested in the stock market, mm-hmm. maybe some some bond funds, maybe a small business or some investment real estate. So just some way uh, to it's essentially insurance against mm-hmm. you know, the old the thing, having all your eggs in one basket, right. because if you drop that one basket, as in the housing crash, um, you know, then there's are, nothing, yeah, nothing nothing to left. buffer. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Um, so I, I guess your message isn't that homes are bad investments. It's just that they shouldn't be a family's only I, investment. Yes. The ideal mm-hmm. would be to have something beyond your house as part of your your savings and investment. And you know, that obviously creates a problem for young families. If you want to become a homeowner and you don't have a lot of wealth, well, a house is expensive. How are you going to afford uh, lots of other assets? And one of the other points you make is a good way to think about, okay, so what's the next priority after you say, if you did want to become a homeowner? And as you said, it's having those liquid assets, those emergency savings, and not just, you know, $100, but more like $1,000 $1,000 or 2000 or 5000 because once you become a homeowner, you're on the hook for a new roof <laughs> oh, or a, a new furnace or right. uh, anything else. And, uh, you know, your car can conk out at mm-hmm. any moment or get in an accident. So um, it's one of those things, you know, you don't leave uh, in the morning expecting to get into a fender bender, but it happens. But that that... that- the sort of too little savings was our third um, sort of characteristic of many struggling families. I, I'd read, I think it came out from the Federal Reserve, that most families don't even have $400 for yes, an emergency. Yes, in a survey, and this is um, the survey of uh, household economic decision-making. Um, that's exactly right, that um, a large number of families would struggle without going to a higher-cost lender uh, to put $500 together for, for a, a car repair. Hmm. So certainly something um, that uh, will go to improve um, uh, family stability is uh, yes. having s- at least some small cushion uh, to help. And then I think the third um, uh, characteristic you noted was too much debt. And you started talking about student loan debt. Um, right. Uh, could you explain if, if that's really the primary driver of this issue well, or if there are other types of debt? That families get trapped in? Uh, there are two ways to think about it. You know, in terms of the dollar amounts of debt, the biggest, when you look across all families, the biggest uh, type of debt is mortgage debt. Mm-hmm. And that's understandable uh, given not necessarily harmful, although uh-huh. we do know that in the last 
uh, housing boom, there were a lot of mortgage loans that were, uh, if not predatory, uh, certainly complicated and hard for people to understand mm-hmm. and maybe had some features that um, caused, caused problems. A lot of that, those problems, I think, fingers crossed, I think some of those problems are solved. We're not uh, seeing those kinds of loans being made anymore. But uh, that still is it's possible, even if you think of it as a, you know, a quote-unquote good type of debt to finance this, this asset of housing, it's certainly the, the case that some families have too much mortgage debt, that they have trouble making the payments. If one of this, say it's a, a couple and one spouse loses a job, can you still make the payment? You know, so that needs to be built into the decision-making mm. at, the, uh, at the beginning. For young people, as you say, student debt is uh, increasing uh, year by year. Young, young people are facing these costs. The other type of debt that I would like to mention, which doesn't show up as being uh, so large as mortgage debt, or even in some cases student debt, but that's um, unsecured types like credit cards. Mm. And it could also be uh, another, a secured type would be an auto loan, but these sorts of personal uh, debts. And again, you, you maybe need a car to get to work or to school, so you know, auto loan makes perfect sense, but it does add up to the, uh, the dollars that you need to be able to pay every month, because if you can't, you can lose the asset. With the case of credit cards, um, a lot of discussion that it's easy to uh, buy something with a credit card and say, well, I'll pay it off next month. Mm-hmm. And then the bill comes and says, well, I'll pay it off next month. Mm-hmm. And so this procrastination cycle, especially if it starts to accrue interest at double-digit interest rates, quickly can accumulate to be a problem. And mm-hmm. uh, so that we know that that can be a, a, a kind of a temptation to uh, to not pay off your bills as soon as possible. Another thing that's uh, important in, in many cases is medical debt. Mm-hmm. People who maybe uh, have some insurance, but it doesn't cover what they the, uh, the needs they have, or maybe mm-hmm. don't have insurance at all, and uh, then you incur some expense, $1,000 for a, whatever, a broken bone or a, a pregnancy. Hmm. Well, um, I, I have two final questions. One is, um, yes. given how complicated it can be for a family to figure out how to manage right. their finances, how are families getting information about how to invest or how to manage debt or how to mm-hmm. make responsible choices? Um, how can we help more families get better um, information about smart choices? I think the the fact is most people get their information from family and friends. Hmm. And this, it's one of the reasons why, going back to one of the first things we talked about, why there are such differences across racial and ethnic groups. If, for example, a group of people has been excluded from financial institutions or educational institutions, whatever kinds of opportunities, then older generations, the grandparents or the parents may not have the experience to help young people. On the other hand, somebody whose parents and grandparents have always had access or have been included in the financial mainstream maybe have more uh, expertise that they can share. So Mm -hmm. I think recognizing that there is this difference, that not everybody has someone who at home or, or next door who can give them good advice, then we do need to be thinking about where else can get people get information. A logical place seems to be schools. And I think um, 
for reasons I don't fully understand, but there's a lot of resistance, I think, in the educational world to provide financial education. And you know, it's an issue, too, getting the information to people, but then also helping them turn that into decisions. Mm-hmm. And that's, I think, maybe one argument why people have said, well, you can't really teach this in primary school because third graders aren't making financial decisions <laughs> right. about housing or, or student right. loans or credit cards. But I guess my thinking would be is there's there must be a way to kind of prime the pump and get people mm-hmm. thinking in these terms. And then as we reinforce it throughout a young person's life, right. when it gets to the point when they do need to make these decisions, maybe then some of the concepts uh, are, are there for them. Right. I, I found one of your um, uh, suggestions really interesting that, um, you know, th- the same way they often advise us for retirement planning. Um, my dad often said, you know, start planning for retirement the first day you work. Right. Um, but right. you've uh, you've recommended starting savings accounts at birth or when sure. kids enter kindergarten. So this notion of starting early really may be uh, appropriate for helping families yes. think about uh how to help even their children uh, prepare for the future. Um, So I guess we've heard a lot about um, uh, lots of ways that demographics impact wealth and um, uh, maybe behavioral uh, decisions, um, you know, knowledge about uh, different financial choices. Um, I guess I'm curious sort of uh, to close, what does the data tell us about where Americans are headed and in terms of their finances and, and economic opportunities. Do you see any any bright spots or um, uh, things we might need to focus on, um, either in policy or practice, to help more families become um, financially stable? You know, Casey, we do the Kids Count Report every year to sort of talk about child well-being, and um, every year their economic well-being is the, the one area we are always so very concerned about. So um, this is vitally important for the, the future of our country. What, what do you think could help us? Well, I think the bright spots are, and I'm not just saying this because I'm talking with you, but it's it's people like you, Lisa, and the Annie E. Casey Foundation, groups that are not involved for a profit motive, but groups who see both that it helps individuals and it helps the country for people to learn more about their own economic and financial lives so they can make better decisions for themselves, their children, their communities, et cetera. So I think the more people who have an interest, uh, and as I say, a non-financial interest. Mm -hmm. So that I think is a real bright spot. Uh, On the not so optimistic side, uh, all the trends that I've seen suggest that these forces driving toward inequality are probably pretty strong, and uh, unless we can do the things we've been talking about to try to uh, slow that down, it's it's going to continue, mm. uh, and that it hits uh, people with lower skills. The job market uh, is pretty tough for people without uh, marketable skills. Not that you can't get a job, but you can't get a job that has a, a high wage, mm-hmm. a potential for lots of advancement, uh, benefits like health insurance and pensions, and uh, That's something that our country and others are struggling with. How do you create that opportunity for the entire population, not just people with education, college level, or postgraduate degrees? And uh, again, I'm speaking only for myself, not for the Federal Reserve System, uh, but there is evidence that suggests that part of the widening of the income and wealth gaps is related to changes in tax policy, Mm. that cutting tax rates, especially the higher marginal tax rates, is a fairly significant reason why we're seeing more concentration of income and wealth at higher 
uh, higher levels. Mm. And so that's an obvious way that policy could could help slow down this process. Gotcha. Well, I certainly appreciate the insight and information you've provided today. The Federal Reserve is an amazing uh, resource for this vital information about how families are doing. And thank you so much for your leadership in trying to make sure that this great information gets out. It's certainly um, the the data that we need in order to make um, better decisions so that we can make sure uh, that more and more of our families and ultimately our children um, have the bright economic futures they deserve. So thank you so much uh, for joining us today, Bill. Thank you, Lisa. And I want to thank our listeners for joining us as well. If you've enjoyed today's conversation, rate our show on Apple Podcasts to help others find us. You can ask questions and leave us feedback on Twitter by using the CaseyCast hashtag. To learn more about Casey and the work of our guests, you can find our show notes at aecf.org forward slash podcast. Until next time, I wish all of America's kids and all of you a bright future.